That's good. That's real good. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We just ask, Lord, that you'd bless us now in these next moments. You speak to our hearts. Again, Lord, we thank you for what you have already done today. We thank you for the Sunday school classrooms, for what transpired, took place on our buses. We're grateful for the service this morning. And Lord, we just ask, dear God, that once again, you'd speak to our hearts through your word. We are needy people, and we're asking you, Lord, just to help us as we seek to navigate through this life, as we seek to honor you with it, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us. Uh, When you return, we certainly want you to find faith. And Lord, we'll thank you, Father, if you would just be pleased to allow us to do so. And Lord, help our church, help our church family, help each and every one of us to do our part, to be where we're to be, do what we're supposed to do until you return. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as I mentioned this morning, we are good at decompartmentalizing our lives as believers. I touched on that very, very briefly, but uh, that's a big word, and there's a lot of letters in it. It's almost like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, but I think it actually has more meaning. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we're good at decompartmentalizing our lives as believers. What that really means is that we're good at separating the secular from the spiritual. We're real good at separating the secular from the spiritual. We kind of put things in boxes. Now, the truth is, is that our decision for Jesus Christ defines who we are and what we are and how we're to live. That's just the reality of it. I mean, uh, this idea of separating spiritual from the, 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 the secular is not biblical at all. As a matter of fact, when you and I become believers in Christ, those things mesh together. They come together. You know, the, the, the interesting thing, I was talking to one of the pastors. He's a pastor in the inner city of Chicago. And um, we were talking, I was talking to him about culture. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, the interesting thing is today is that you go around the world and people give passes to different groups of people because of their culture. For instance, one culture in the Christian life can have music that's fleshly because, well, that's their culture. No. And and I told this black pastor, I said, there is only one culture, and it is a biblical culture. It's defined the Bible. And he said, brother, you are absolutely right. Now, let me tell you something. We have allowed the culture we live in to redefine the biblical culture. It is not right to listen to fleshly music, no matter what your color, your race, your creed, your gender, your nationality. If you are a child of God, you and I are all on the same team. We're all in the same body. We all play by the same rule book. There is no different rule book for a different race. There's no different rule book for a different gender 
or different nationality. We all play out of the same book. The rules never change. And you know what? That's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a matter of fact, that's very nice because now the standard is the same for all of us. None of us can take a pass. None of us say, well, because of my this, therefore I don't have to do this. And you say, but I have to do that. Why, don't I, why can't I not do that? Well, it's different for you. No, we don't have that in Christianity. It's all defined and outlined right here. It's very clear. So the truth is that our decision for Jesus Christ defines who we are and, 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 and what we are and how we are to live our lives. Now, I want you to turn to John chapter 8, verse 12. And we're going to look at a passage here that's very important. And it, 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 we're just going to use it to kind of kick things off a little bit. I don't know how far into this I'm going to get. But these are just some thoughts. And I want to share some things that I'm very concerned about as we move forward in Christianity today. Uh, it's not just in our church. It's in churches across the country I'm seeing this trend. And I'm very alarmed by it. Very alarmed. Notice in John chapter 8, verse 12. <clears throat> the Bible says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. We wouldn't argue with that, would we? Nobody would. We'd all agree he's the light of the world, at least while he was here, we know. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And that's exciting. You know, while he was on earth, he says, I'm the light of the world. If you're going to walk with me, guess what you've got? You're not walking in darkness. Why? Because you shall have the light of life. Okay, that's simple. That makes sense. Where Jesus was, there's light. I'm good to go. I'm not walking in darkness where he is. You know, the truth is, is that you and I may not be living with Jesus physically on this earth, but we, none of us walk in darkness either. We walk in the light as well. See, Jesus Christ is the light, and he lives inside each and every one of us. As long as we remain close to him, we walk in the light as well. The Bible says in John 15, 19, If ye were of the world, however, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world loveth you more. So That's not what it says. It says... But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. It hateth you. Now, <clears throat> the fact that we walk in light will bring attention to us in the world that we live in today because it is darkness. You don't have to do anything to be hated except be a Christian. You don't have to say anything wrong. You don't have to do anything wrong. You don't have to demonstrate a bad spirit. You just simply have to be light. And if you are light, then you're not of the world. The world's going to hate you. Now, it's not talking about every person you walk into, every person you, so, you know, you walk into a store and you're paying your bill and you're like, I can't stand that you hate me. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, that's not what, but we are talking about the idea when we shed light, when we share light, when light is oozing from us, when righteousness is visible in our lives, people will find conviction and they will say, I can't stand you. I can't stand him. I don't want him around me. I don't want her around me. 
Because that's, that light just really makes people uncomfortable. Those who are in darkness will not appreciate the light. And in turn, they're going to hate both it and you at times. Now, we don't see that much today in America, do we? And I believe that's what I'm really alarmed about. I don't have a lot of people hate me. Not too many. Maybe there's one or two. I don't know. Maybe there's 10 or 20. I don't know. Maybe through the live stream there might be 100 or 200. I don't know. But I got a feeling nobody hates me. I don't feel like it at least. Why? Why is that? The Bible says that if I'm light, the world's going to hate me. So what's going on here? Is that passage true or not? And he was talking specifically about his disciples. He wasn't talking about it in abstract. He was talking about it specifically about a group of men that he himself had trained and prepared to go out and to shed the light, share the light. See, the world will easily be able to point out how unusual, peculiar, and different we are. At least that's what the Bible's teaching then, because that light is so visible, it's so different than what they're accustomed to. In John 17, 14, and also in verse 16, turn there, would you? John 17, verse 14 and 16. Jesus is praying here, and he's praying to the Father, and he's trying to I mean, it's a wonderful prayer for the people of God. It's for the wonderful prayer for the disciples that will be left behind and for the church that will come behind them. And he says, I have given them thy word. Jesus said, I've given them, these men right here, I've given those that have followed me, I've given those that have believed in me, I've given them thy word. And the world hath hated them. What? What? Now you say, yeah, of course the world hated them in those days because, I mean, they were in, in the Roman Empire and in the Roman Empire there was a, 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 an evil king, if you will, and he hated all Christians and Christians were hated. And why were they hated though? They, they could have got along with everybody too if they'd have just got with the program. But they didn't get with the program. They had their own program. They had their own culture. It was different than the world they were living in. They couldn't bow down to the idols that the culture bowed down to. They couldn't embrace the beliefs and the philosophies that the world was embracing. They had their own culture. They had their own rules to live by. And boy, they didn't like that they wouldn't get on board That bothered them. All you have to do is believe the way we believe. Do what we do and think like we think. And it'll all be okay. That's what they told them. But I've given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. Verse 16 They are not of the world. He says it again, even as I'm not of the world. Do you you sometimes wonder whether or not you're 
of the world? Do you ever think that about that? You say, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm not of the world. No, I'm asking, do you think you fit into the world? Do you fit into this world? Do you find that everybody loves you, likes you? You fit right in. Do you, do you find that you're pretty much normal? I'm starting to get a little more concerned of the fact that as a church and as a people that are supposed to be so peculiar and unique and different, we fit in all too well, I think. And I'm talking about me too. I'm getting a little concerned about it. Again, it seems to me today that Christianity is more concerned with fitting in with the world, you know, in order to win them, than they are in being separated unto God and walking in the light today. I'm just a little concerned about it. You know, we go out of our way not to offend, upset, or anger those who are not believers. Now, our goal should never be to promote conflict, but light, according to the Scriptures, does that naturally. You don't have to work at being hated. I don't have to work at that. And we're raising a generation today, and we're telling all of our kids, now listen, don't create conflict, you know, love everybody, treat everybody with respect, don't ever bring division. You can't help but bring division if you stand for Jesus and according to the Word of God. We're not preparing them for the real life that they're going to have to live in the culture that's coming. What I'm concerned about is, is I feel almost like we've been, and, and I'm going to express this in just a moment, I feel like we've been at peacetime for years, and we're finally in war. But we're not ready to face it. Jesus himself pointed out that the world hated those that are in the light. The apostles may have tried to walk in peace with all men, but as much as they tried, they could not escape the inevitable. I believe that we're struggling today with where to fit in in our society. I think our young people are having a horrible time trying to identify how they should respond and act and live in a world in which is changing so rapidly and so quickly. I believe that parents today are struggling to guide their children in this culture we live, and they're trying to kind of somehow kind of tiptoe on one side and on the other. We don't want to somehow seem as though we don't have, you know, like, like that, that we're, we're just ignoramuses and we're old school and we're old-fashioned. But we don't want to just say, go live like the world either. So there's not a lot of clear direction we're giving our young people, I don't think. I don't know that they're seeing the stand that the Bible teaches us to take. I don't know if they see the light in us that they ought to see. I'm not saying that we're not loving, and I'm not saying we're not kind, and I'm not saying that we're not even trying to win a soul here and there. What I'm saying is, is that we're fitting all too well in the world, but the world's changing so fast that by fitting in, we are condoning what they see. I'm a little concerned about it. When I took a trip years ago, my dad and I took a trip to Paris Island. We went down to Paris Island. A girl in my youth group had graduated from uh, boot camp. And this was years ago now. 
We got down there, and my dad, I just could not wait to go to Paris Island with my dad. He had told me so many stories about boot camp and training and all of that, and I'd never seen the place, never been there. So when we got there, I was excited, and boy, he and I got to spend the whole day down there together, and we got to go eat down there, and we got to meet all these different fellas that had been in the military and had served their country. We found men that had served uh, uh, in Vietnam, And man, I'm going to tell you, they started swapping stories about about how it was down at boot camp. My dad was down there in 1959, and and it was right after that one young man had died or something like that, had been hit. They were using what they used to call these, um, I don't know, the the, the drill sergeants used to have these sticks. And they'd smack those guys around with them. They weren't allowed to use those anymore. They're told, you can't use that. That's just inhumane. You guys are putting too much of a hurt on them. And then we got talking to that fella who'd been in Vietnam. And he started talking about how they treated him down there before they went to Vietnam. I mean, the war was on now. And he said, this is how we got treated. All they cared about was preparing us for war. He said, there was no mercy. He said, they knew the moment we leave this boot camp, we're going to go to our AIT or our advanced training and then right on over to Vietnam and we're going to see bullets flying and watching our friends die beside us. And he said, all they cared about was preparing us for war. And it was rough. It was tough. It was, I mean, it was at times seemed unbearable but they prepared us. And even then he said, no matter how much you're prepared, you're never ready for that. I guess what I'm trying to say is is that basic training for the Marines, at least at that point, was intrinsically the same throughout, but during wartime, it was ramped up. It became tougher. It got even more intense than ever. That training took on a whole new flavor. So depending on whether it was peacetime or wartime, I mean, it was tough. But when there was a war going on, when we were engaged in conflict, it was especially intense and difficult. I believe we're living in the last days. I don't know if the Lord's going to come back tonight. I don't know if he's coming back next week. I don't know if it'll be 100 or 200 years from now. But I believe we're in the last days. The Apostle Paul thought that, so I think I'm okay to do so. But I believe that over the last 50 years, as I look over Christianity in my lifetime, it seems that in America, we have been operating in peacetime. We've been living, in a sense, without real battles in our lives. It has come easy to the Christian in America. We have been given the freedoms to preach and teach and to go on the streets and do anything we wanted. We've not had the battle the way some people have in other cultures and countries around this world. We haven't had to prepare ourselves for the conflict the way they have in other countries and around the world. And as a result, there seems to have grown a sense of apathy. 
a real sense of apathy. But I believe today we find ourselves in the battle of a lifetime. Our freedoms are being trampled upon, our rights are being removed, and our beliefs are being undermined and attacked like never before in our lifetime. May I suggest that this is not the time to embrace a less intensive faith or less radical faith, but instead it's time to raise the intensity and training and to demand a greater level of commitment. I'm convinced that believers need to draw even clearer lines in the sand and leave no doubt in the minds of others and those in the world in which we live as to whose side we are really on. Being in the midst of an all-out war, an all-out war against truth and righteousness today, I believe we need to train harder and sacrifice more than ever. And there is no time to fraternize with the enemy. We cannot compromise the fundamental truths or the biblical standards that have been staples throughout our Christian heritage and our, the centuries, actually. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel 22.30. God is still looking for this man. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, the Lord, dealing with Israel, of course, is saying, and I sought for a man among them. Let me just say this. Well, I'm not saying it yet. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Listen to what I'm going to say. You don't have to agree with it. I think what was missing in that day was a man. And say a preacher. I didn't say somebody that was strong and had muscles. I believe what was missing was a man. All he was looking for was a man. Isn't it interesting that the very attack that our culture is just bombarding us with in the world we live in today is undermining male authority? Because if God can't find a man, He'll never find a preacher. He'll never find someone to stand up and proclaim the truth, whether He gets paid to do it or not. Because it's going to take a man to stand when the bullets are flying. Proverbs twenty two twenty eight says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. We have lived in cushy America for 50 years. We've had some of the greatest preachers in history proclaiming the message of the gospel and the Christian life over the last 50 years. And yet when it comes time for battle these days, we are seeing a departure from the old paths. We're seeing a departure from the ancient landmarks like never before. In Jeremiah 6.16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Boy, it's funny. We always think that our generation and our age is the worst and it's got to be, you know, wow. 
had so, so much better back then. Obviously, they had the same problem we're having today. Everybody wanting some, something new and improved. The only problem is the new and improved is most often neither new or is it improved. And get no amens there. You know, there is, we live in a generation that only looks forward today. They don't think anybody has anything to teach them from the past. Hey, we, we're smarter than you were. We got all the answers. We know how this should really work. We've really studied the Word, and we've studied uh, astronomy, and we've studied mathematics, and we've studied, studied, studied. Much learning hath made thee mad. They don't look back anymore. We only look forward. And I know there's an element of truth to that statement. And don't go running off and talking about Ephesians. I understand the context of that too. But let me tell you this. Until a man or a woman can look back and seek the advice of an old person, they'll never know how to travel forward the way they ought to. There are things that the old have learned in their lifetime that are invaluable to success in your generation. And when you discard what they have learned and what they have taught even in their lifetime, not only do you disrespect them, but you've done a foolish thing. If we hope to win the battle, we're going to need to first identify the enemy. And can I tell you, that's becoming increasingly more difficult in the last 40 years. The influence of liberals and moderates who profess to be Christians has simply muddied the waters today. Everybody professing Christ. Everybody talking love. Everybody talking to you about heaven. Everybody talking about how wonderful it is to know Jesus. But can I tell you, they don't all know Jesus. They fall right back, some fall right back into Matthew 7. I never knew you. You do not deviate from this book and think you are right with God. You do not discard the Word of God and think you are living a biblical culture. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. See, this isn't my book. This is his book. This isn't your book. It's his book. This isn't Community Baptist Temple's book. It's his book. This isn't Christianity's book. It's his book. What was wrong is now right. And we see that in the culture we live. But can I tell you, it's happening in our churches all the time. What used to be wrong is now okay. Can I tell you, let, let me just throw something at you. I heard a preacher say this week, he said, you know, back in my day, if you wore wire rim glasses, you were considered liberal. And he was kind of making fun of the old timers. And I got thinking, why did they associate that with liberalism? Was it possibly that the Beatles were wearing wire rim glasses? 
Was it possibly that the culture had embraced that style and that style represented worldliness? It wasn't the wire-rimmed glasses that were the problem for the old-timer. It was the fact that we were identifying with the world as Christians. And can I tell you that the Bible doesn't have to spell out every wrong and right. We live by principles today. And I thought to myself, that preacher, he is right in one sense, but he is dead wrong in another. Because I'm telling you, there are things today we ought to be preaching against that 20 years from now will go, that was weird. Because they won't represent worldliness. Can I tell you, you can wear a pair of wire rim glasses today and nobody thinks a thing of it. We have moved on to much worse things. But they were so legalistic. I think some of the old-timers are trying to protect some of the new generation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. I believe they actually cared about people. Today, we see wrong and right all the time being flip-flopped. We got women preachers today. Not just a few. We got tons of them. You know what's really sad? We got Baptist women who listen to them. Who take advice from them. Yeah, we'll sit there and say, well, it's, women shouldn't be preachers, but boy, can she flat lay it down. You want to know something? There are some women that could be better preachers than a lot of men. There really are. But that's not the role God gave them. It doesn't matter what you're good at. What matters is do you fit into his role and his scheme? I should be playing professional football. But God called me to be a preacher, so I gave it all up. I would have been a millionaire. <laughs> yeah. I'm also a liar. Whoa. <laughs> they got gay ministers today. And you know what? For you to say that's wrong is judging. No, it isn't. Because it's not my truth and it's not my word. It's his. God judges that. I just embrace it. I uphold it because that's what God says is right and wrong. I'm telling you, we've got a lot of things in Christianity that have changed, and I'm telling you, they are changing at lightning speed today. And I'm very alarmed by it. I'm concerned about it. Because it doesn't seem to me that light is really shining so much. It seems to me that everything is moving without any real disruption. That there's no real kickback on all the change that's transpiring in our churches. And we just seem to roll with the flow. And we choose the path of least resistance. See, the basis for truth today is rooted in feeling. If there is one thing the devil has done a fabulous job of, again, it's demasculatizing men and creating a, a whole nation of women. You, you say, that offends me. You know what? About now, that's okay. You need to be offended. Because I'm going to tell you something. When there's no male leadership as God intended, the ship's going to go way off course. And can I tell you, even in our Baptist churches today across this country, we are stepping down out of the pulpits and giving it over to the one who has the greatest influence. Can I tell you who ought to have the greatest influence in a local church? 
and don't get all pious on me. God. Of course God should. But the pastor ought to. You know why that's not happening in our churches today? You know why anything goes in our churches today? Because God's still searching for a man first. A man says enough's enough. We stop it right there. It's time to get on board with his word. We need some men today in their homes that say enough's enough. We're not going there. We're not talking like that. We're not thinking like that. We're not going to do that. We're going to do what God's word says. We're going to apply his culture in our home and our life. And you know what? Excuse me, ma'am, but please, no more of that. Young children, enough of it. But we don't really have men. We're still searching for those because the world has totally and completely stripped us of our masculinity and told us it's not even good to be competitive, let alone authoritative. God forbid a man actually says no to his wife. Don't do that, sir. I think there's only people laughing are over 60. <laughs> you know I don't preach like this much. I can't tell you the last time I've preached like this, but I'm telling you I'm so concerned about our country. I'm concerned about our churches. I'm concerned about what we used to call old-fashioned Christianity. Biblical Christianity. Oh, we're, we're, we still gets better. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Truth is paramount. And it ought to be the church where it's especially outlined, upheld, and rooted. Look at what the Bible says about truth. If there is any place you should be able to find truth, it's in the house of God. That's where you should find truth. That's where you need to look for truth. Look at this. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We are looking for truth in all the wrong places today. The devil has undermined the authority of the local pastor. And now we've got the wonderful internet to go out and listen to anyone and everyone that suits our fancy. You say, well, what are you so scared about? I'm not scared about nothing. I'm scared for you. That's what I'm worried about. I'm seeing what they're propagating, what they're promoting on the internet. I know what they're pushing. And it's not biblical Christianity, my friend. You better beware. Truth does not discriminate either. Truth does not discriminate. We discriminate with truth today, though. We do. See, we decide that grace is the most important or we choose mercy as king while all along we neglect other truths like holiness, justice, or separation. I mean, we do. We discriminate. We put more emphasis on one than the other, but God doesn't. God says we need to have a balance in all of them. We need to strive for that biblical balance in our life and ministry. We can't be overweighted on any side. I have always leaned toward grace when given opportunity. I will always do that. Always. I believe it's necessary. It's needful. I'll lean that direction. 
If given opportunity, I will always lean that way. But grace doesn't dismiss other truths, and it doesn't dismiss the consequences of our actions. At times, we place compassion over truth. We embrace the sinner today who has not demonstrated any repentance. Go ahead and sin, but you should just forgive me and you should just accept me the way I am. I'm sorry, but there needs to be an attitude of repentance before you are permitted back in to service. Sadly today, we are redefining biblical terms. Words like love. Love has been redefined as tolerance in our culture. And sadly, it's being redefined in our churches the same way. We have redefined the word grace. It's been redefined as acceptance. Doesn't matter what someone does, you just have to demonstrate grace. You have to accept them. Sadly enough, we, they misunderstand what that means when we do that. They think it means we accept their sin. So, this shift away from truth has changed the entire message of the Bible now. You can read the Bible and read it all wrong because we've redefined the words. Can you imagine what would happen today if we defined the color red as green? Can you imagine if we said, no, that's not red, that's green now. Can you imagine what our traffic patterns would look like in America? I mean, I want you to think about that for a minute. And then you say, that's stupid. Just as stupid as redefining the words in the Bible. Because it creates the same confusion and destruction. See, the end of this particular philosophy that I'm expressing, or this culture shift, leads to a society that has no need of God. Why? Here's why. Because they're all accepted in love for who and what they are already. That translates to no need for change. If I'm okay the way I am, why do I need to change? If I'm all right in my sin and the way I'm living now, if everybody embraces me and accepts it and I, there's no consequence for it, nobody's standing up and saying, that's wrong, that is wrong, that is dead wrong. Nobody says that. Why would I ever be motivated to change? Tragically, whether we accept folks in sin and their sin, and I know I'm about fed up to hear, listen, I'm just going to tell you, I personally am a man of grace, but I can tell you this, too many times we've allowed our grace to cripple someone in sin because we don't hold them accountable to the biblical truth. We dismiss the consequences and they never learn the lesson. And they say, well, obviously they accept me and they accept my sins, so why would I change? Why do I need God? Why do I even need a Savior if I'm all right? So we don't preach hard against sin because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't take a stand against sin or sinners that are living in vile, wretched, sinful lifestyles because we want them to feel comfortable to come to our churches. But all along, they have no reason to change. Because they're okay the way they are. 
Tragically, they're not accepted by God, though. You say, that's not true. Show me where a sinner can live however they want, and God will accept them in their sin. Show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible where there doesn't have to be a spirit of repentance. Show me in the Bible where they don't fear God first before they fear not. Show me that. Show me where someone goes to heaven before they recognize themselves as wretched and sinful and nothing. It doesn't happen, but we are, we are building a culture in our churches out of the world. That's what they say, everyone's okay and everyone's all right and you have to learn to accept and tolerate all lifestyles and all issues. Don't you dare make someone feel uncomfortable with their lifestyle or their sin. No, don't you do that. That's not right. That's so angry. That's so mean. That's so nasty. No, it's not. It's loving. I don't have to go around pointing out people's sin, but I can guarantee you when it splashes in my face, I told the singles today, I'm about fed up to hear with gay pride marches. I don't like them. I don't like men committing sodomy on streets in America. I don't like what's going on in our country. And sadly, we're afraid to say anything like that because somehow, some way, we're going to turn them off from coming to this church. I can tell you right now, if they're going to come to this church, it will be because you, you, and you get out there and win somebody and bring them. It ain't going to be because they just walk in because they want what we have. That's ridiculous. We've got to do something today. We cannot be like the world. We must be unique. We must be different. We must be peculiar. Or they'll see no need to change. If my child's getting drunk from time to time, I'm not going to say, well, <clears throat> you know what? You're a big boy. Especially if you live in my home, mind you. If he's out of my home, I can't do nothing about it. I'll still say something, though. I'm still dad. I'm going to say something. But I'm going, well, you're a big boy, so I accept your choice to drink. I mean, you may not view drinking as being sinful as I do, and so who am I to tell you that you're wrong? Well, I mean, son, you've you got to make your own choices, and so if you choose to drink and to get drunk, well, I'm here for you. I'd prefer you didn't drink, but on the other hand, I'll not judge you. Just let me know if you need anything. I still love you. Is that what you would say as a parent? Is that really what you would do? You know what I would do first? I'm going to clearly point out the error of their way. That's the first thing I'm going to do, show them why they're wrong in the direction they're traveling. And then I'm going to quickly direct them to the Scriptures so I can point out exactly what God has to say about it because that's really all that really matters in the end. And this isn't a matter of what you and I believe, by the way. It's rather what God says, son. So let me just show you. Turn, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians 6.12. Now I'm going to show you how to handle it because, see, this is where the breakdown is. Oh, you, oh boy, I can see where this is going. You don't have a clue where this is going. What I'm telling you is how to handle stuff. You have to use the word of God because this is the culture that we are promoting. This is the culture we have to live by. So if you don't have a Bible verse to back up what you're going to say, you probably need to keep your mouth shut because it's the only way that you can speak the truth in love is by going to God's word and showing him what he has to say. 
And if you don't know what to say, find out what to say. Here it is. Just give me, I'll give you a few ideas, a few thoughts about this one thing. Nobody's kids in here have ever had a drink. You know what I'm saying? Are you kidding? This stuff's going to happen. So let me help you with this one. Notice 1 Corinthians 6.12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the... I'll not be brought under the... I'll not be brought under the power of any. You say, that's not a verse about drinking. Are you out of your mind? Seriously? I mean, really? You don't think that's... Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What is he saying? Don't come under the power of alcohol. And right in the passage, he says, okay, so you're a Christian. Yeah, you might be able to do whatever you want, and you'll still be saved, no doubt about it. But why in the world would you? It might be lawful, but it's not expedient. It's not in your best interest to be brought under the power of that alcohol. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Let's look there. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. See, I have no wisdom in myself. The only wisdom I truly have is His wisdom. And you know what? If you've got anything wise to say, it ought to come right from the book because the truth is anything really wise is a biblical principle more than likely. It might as well use the Bible. Let God get the credit for it even. Proverbs 20, verse 1, because it is the word of God that will change a life, by the way. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. But Jesus turned water into wine. Those people wouldn't have known if that was alcoholic wine or not because it was at the end of the party. And I don't believe for a minute that he created alcoholic wine that they could get drunk on. I don't believe that for a minute. It was a natural process that took place. Jesus always sped up nature. Jesus always did something that took nature forever to do. He could do it like that. Whether it was grow a limb whether it was bring speech, whatever it might have been. But in this case, take those old grapes and turn them into wine. That was a process that took time. But can I tell you, there's no fermentation taking place by the time it was done. It turned into wine, new wine, before it was ever fermented because they didn't add nothing to it. You need to go to a distillery sometime between your vacation and see how they make wine. It doesn't just happen on its own. There's a process. Man has to intervene a little bit. The natural process doesn't do bring about the kind of alcohol numbers that man's process does. It doesn't work that way. It says, yeah, but it'll still ferment. Yes, but let me tell you, you won't want to drink it after a while. It ain't going to be sweet like it was in the Bible. So here it is, wine's a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now look, if you would, to Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Let's take our, take our son to the 
Word of God and say, now let's take a few examples, son. Let's consider how alcohol affected his life, his family. Genesis 9, verse 20 through 26. The Bible says there, And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken. I don't know about you, but whether or not that wine that he made was an alcoholic wine or not, he was never, ever, 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 ever given permission to get drunk with it. You just believe whatever you want about it. Well, Yahweh is actually alcoholic wine and blah, blah, blah. I get all that. But I can tell you this, there was never a time when anyone was permitted ever to get drunk. And furthermore, if you lived in a country where there was no clean water to drink and you had to ensure that it was purified, it may end up, end up being a situation where, well, something goes down like that. This idea that in America we need alcohol, we don't need alcohol. We got pure water running through our pipes. You don't need alcohol to drink today. You don't need something that's been purified. We have purified water. That's what he says here in Genesis 9, 20 through 26. Again, he goes talking here and he says, and he drank of the wine and it was drunken and was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, cursed be Canaan and servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole details of this one, but let me just tell you, there was some immorality in this situation, and there was a lot of family problems. Alcohol caused a man to do things he'd have never dreamed he'd do. Sad. A sad commentary. In Genesis 19... We see that Lot was so drunk, Lot was so drunk that his daughters had relationships with him and they bore two nations from him, all because of alcohol. I wonder if he learned that from Abraham or if he learned that in Sodom. I wonder where he learned that. This is what you have to look forward to, son. This is what your life will be like. With alcohol as your God. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. You know that God commanded priests not to drink so that they could tell the difference between the holy and the unholy? We don't have time to go into all of that, but he told them. By the way, did you know that according to Revelation chapter 1, you are kings and you are kings and you're kings and priests. But a priest wasn't permitted to drink alcohol because he would not be able to distinguish between the holy and unholy. That Old Testament is a picture book of New Testament faith. You do not have a right to go out and drink alcohol. 
especially to get drunk as a believer. And what a horrible, terrible testimony it is to the world that knows it doesn't truly belong in a Christian's life. Proverbs 21, 17, the Bible says, He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man, but he that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Proverbs 23, 21, For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Proverbs 23, 31, Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in its cup, when it moveth itself aright. Listen, there's just things you don't play with, you don't mess with, you don't touch. You stay away from alcohol, son. It's not good. We don't do that in our house, and it will not continue. I would hope that that's your response. And I hope you'd use the Word of God to point out why it's wrong. So that they don't say later, well, you never showed, told me why. You just said it was wrong. You never showed me why. They'll still say that to you. I never knew why. They'll still say that to you. We have singles that do that all the time. They learned it in their high school years. They learned it from mom and dad, but they always go, you know what he ever showed me? Nothing. Come on. How many times you got to read a verse that tells you not to do something to finally say, well, God's word's still true. I don't have to understand everything. What I do know is what it says, and I guess I'll study it myself if I need to know more. So you cannot play with fire and get burned, son. Why would you flirt with such danger and destruction? Why would you do that? I'm not going to sit there and say it's okay. I'm not going to give him a pass. I'm not going to say I'm not judging you. I'm going to say, son, this is what God says about it. You're wrong. You need to fix it. Get it right. You can't please God as long as you're rebelling against his word. And I'm not going to give him a penny to go out and get a beer. Well, I'll pay his rent. I'm not paying his rent either because he'll use the money he'd have paid his rent for to go buy a beer. Oh, preacher, you're so mean. I think in the day and age in which we live, we better figure out who we're serving. We better figure out where we stand on truth. Do I want to please my son more than the master? Which is it? Which is it? You make your own choices. I'll make mine. But let's face it, every one of us are going to stand before Jesus and give an account. I don't have time to go through these. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. Here they are. Number one, what are we to do in the day and age in which we live? This is the message now. Is that crazy or what? It's not time to relax on the standards. It's time to follow them even more closely. I mean, we're in battle right now. Amen. We're in the battle. It's not time to lax up. It's not time to forget about PT now. Physical training. It's not time to say you don't have to clean your weapon with a blindfold anymore. No, it's time. you better be able to clean it with a blindfold. Matter of fact, you're going to do it faster than ever because when you get over in the heat of the battle, it's going to be on. You better be prepared. We're going to raise the standard. Amen. Right. Number two, the prerequisite to serve is still a sanctified life. In order to serve in the local church and to serve the Lord, it's still a sanctified life. That's the prerequisite. That's what's required of us. 
In Exodus 40, 30, the Bible says, And he shall set the laver between the tent of the congregation, the altar, and put water there to wash withal. That brazen laver was placed between that altar where they sacrificed, and behind stood that holy place, that holy of holies in the holy place. The priest could not enter into that till he washed himself, cleansed himself. Why is that? Because, see, a priest had to be clean in order to minister to God. By the way, you're not ministering to the pastor. You're not ministering to these people around here in a sense. Although they are benefactors of your ministering, your ministering is to Christ. God uses clean vessels. The church is doing a sad disservice. And I'm talking about the church in general. Doing a sad disservice by permitting people who are unclean to continue to serve in capacities. Once that sin is found out, it needs to be addressed. I'm not saying that a repentant heart doesn't get grace. But a hardened heart must be addressed and dealt with. We have teenagers and we have some of you adults that get strung out on pornography. If your heart is tender and you want help and you legitimately are willing to be accountable, grace is extended. Major grace. But then the person who says, well, this is what I do. I can't help it. This is the way it is. I'm sorry. You're not going to stand in the choir and sing, my friend, for sure. You definitely aren't going to do that. You're not going to teach my Sunday school classes. And I say mine, I'm thinking about my kids being in them when they were little. They're all grown up now. But I'm as a parent, I didn't want them teaching in my, Sunday school, my kids' Sunday school class. You've got to be clean. Number three, we must be careful not to unwittingly condone sin by being so accommodating to it. The Bible says in Proverbs 26, 3 through 5, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the ass, and a rod for the fool's back. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Well, we got to be very careful. We do not give a misconception to someone that is steeped in sin and give them the idea that we condone it or that we agree with them in their folly. We can't do that or we are taken in their folly. We're just as bad as them, the Bible says. And finally, number four, now is the time to stand up and stand out. Proverbs 26, 3 through 5 says, a whip, oh, I just, uh, I, I wrote the wrong verses down there. I got so encouraged by that last set that I put it twice. I meant to put Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. It's called a computer error here. Ephesians 6, verse 11 says, But put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, I'll tell you what, there are some real tricks he has up his sleeve. And I'm telling you, more than ever, I believe we're in the battle of a lifetime. It's not time to step away from biblical truth and biblical standards. It's a time to embrace them all the more. 
By the way, it's never attractive for a believer to agree with someone who's in sin and in opposition to God. That is not attractive at all. Not for the believer, it isn't. I just want to encourage you to be willing to take a stand in the world you're living in. To be the light that God says you are. And by the way, when you become that light, the road's going to get a little tougher. When I become that light, it's going to get a little tougher. Because you know what? The world will not understand it. They will... They are going to call us names. They're, They're going to say bad things about us. But I think this is the truth. I think we better all get ready for one thing. We ought to better put, wrap our minds around something. That if you want someone's favor in this world, you ought to want Christ first. We have to embrace a biblical culture today. And let me tell you, the world's culture is creeping into our churches like never before. Let's stand up for Christ and show off for Christ. Let's make sure we're upholding this book, not our own opinions or the opinions of others. Let's focus on the truth. Let's separate ourselves like those Old Testament priests did so that we can distinguish between the holy and the unholy. Let's be clean first. Clean isn't just reading your Bible and praying. It goes far beyond that. Let's be clean. Clean. We've got to work at being clean. And the rest will come into view. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for just um, giving us your word. We are thankful for that. We realize, Lord, in our lives, there's not a one of us that can't improve in certain areas. It's not one of us that can't learn something new or can't embrace more truth that is not been limited somehow, some way in our Christian lives. We, Father, pray that you will help each and every one of us, Lord, to focus more on your word than we do on anyone or anything else, that we spend the time that we need in it, that we identify the old paths and not remove the ancient landmarks, that we continue to follow your ways Lord, as we are facing the battle of a lifetime, may we not now drop the banner. May we not now lower the standard. May instead we raise it now higher. And may we even raise the standard of separation more than ever, that the world may see us clearly and be able to identify us as yours, your possession, peculiar possession. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed today.